Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a journey through the book of Revelation that we're taking during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And it's our conviction that the book of Revelation is supposed to provide us certain comfort in uncertain times, and that the reason why it so often doesn't is because we get so lost in the symbolism, so lost uh, in some of the things that we don't know for certain, that we miss the things that we do know for certain. We miss the things that we are supposed to see, trying to figure out the things that we don't immediately or clearly see. And we come to a passage today that uh, kind of embodies that problem. Uh, and this is the, the passage in Revelation chapter 11 where we have two witnesses arrive on the scene. And so much time and energy and effort is poured into trying to identify the two witnesses, trying to identify those one-to-one symbolic correlations, that we do miss what uh, the, the message would be for the uh, a church in the first century suffering through war and persecution and plague and, and poverty, and really what it's trying to communicate to a 21st century church that is uh, perhaps starting to experience many of those same things. And so we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses today. And so please follow along if you have your Bibles open. Then I was given a measuring reed, like a rod, with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. 
Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at uh, all the symbolism in this chapter. I will say off the bat, I do not think that uh, the two witnesses are meant to be two literal persons, nor do I think the 1,260 days or three and a half years is meant to be a literal time period. Uh, And there's uh, a few reasons for that that I'll just run through quickly before we get into the bulk of what we want to look at is what this chapter is saying to the church living in very uncertain times. Uh, But I do think that those two witnesses are a reference to the faithful church and not a reference to two end times uh, at the end of the end times personages. I don't think it's a a reference to Elijah and Moses coming back. I don't think it's a reference to Elijah and Enoch coming back um, so that they might be killed since they are recorded as never having died in Scripture. Uh, I do think it's a reference to the faithful church, and there's a number of reasons for that. First, they are referred to as lampstands. Uh, And of course, the lampstands were how Jesus referred to the churches earlier in the book, in chapters 2 and 3. In those letters as well, only two of the churches were found to be faithful. The rest of them all had something that Jesus uh, was criticizing them for, something that Jesus was calling them to repent of. Only two of the churches were faithful and were not called to repent. And so I think we are, when we hear two lampstands, in reference to these two witnesses, we're supposed to think of faithful churches. Uh, I think it's also a reference to the fact that the early church sent out witnesses in pairs. We see that in the Gospels where Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs. We see that in the book of Acts as the apostles go out to bear witness to Christ in pairs. Um, It might also be a reference, though I'm not entirely convinced of this, of the, the two peoples of God, so to speak, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Um, But either way, I think that this is a reference to the faithful believers, to the faithful church. And I think you see this as well in verses 8 and 9 of Revelation chapter 11, where uh, the witnesses are slain, and it says their bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. And you see that the word bodies appears three times in those two verses. The first two of those times, it's actually a singular word. Uh, It doesn't actually say their bodies. It says their body. Uh, Their dead body or their corpse, singular will lie in the main street of the great city. Uh, And some of the people's tribes, languages, the nations will view their body for three and a half days. Uh, It's a singular body, which of course is a common New Testament reference to the church. And so these two witnesses share a body uh, that that will lie in the main street of the city and that will be viewed by people's tribes, languages, and nations. And it's only that third body that is bodies that is actually a plural um, which I think is actually the uh, the bodies of slain believers he then shifts uh, uh, in order to talk about the the actual dead bodies uh, that would be part of the body of the church being slain and so I do think these witnesses uh, are the faithful church and then the, the three and a half years not only does it call back to Daniel a period of tribulation um 
but it also is that reference to Elijah. We see the reference to Elijah in verse 6. Uh, and remember that Elijah held back the rain for three and a half years. And now in the, these, the ministry of these witnesses lasts for three and a half years. And so I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to be taking these things literally. Though, of course, there's been much debate throughout church history on that. But I think no matter how we take this, I do think that this chapter uh, is giving a message to the church living in very uncertain times, that message of certain comfort, that message of what are we to think when we are living through times of uncertainty, times of persecution, times of suffering, times of tribulation. And so we're going to be looking at three things that we see about the church in times of suffering and tribulation and persecution in uncertain times. And the first is that the church is defined by the presence of God. The church is defined by the presence of God. If you've been following along with us in the book of Revelation, you know that I've argued that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are not happening one after another, but happening all at the same time. That it's three different ways of looking at God's activity on the earth in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, in between the cross and the resurrection and his return. Uh, and that there's other ways of looking at it as well, as we saw last week where John hears seven thunders, uh, and yet he is prohibited from writing down uh, what those seven thunders entailed. And um, so we, we have these equivalents between the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And this is the interlude in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And so it's the equivalent of the interlude that takes place between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And the interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal was the sealing of God's people, the sealing of 144,000. Uh, that then when John looked at those 144,000, uh, was a multitude too great to be numbered from every people, tribe, language, and nation. And so this is the equivalent to that. And what you see in verses 1 and 2, which is another reason why I don't think the witnesses are meant to be literal, is you see the equivalent of God sealing believers. In verses 1 and 2, Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. What I think you see is as John is told to measure the temple, really what we see is what we saw in chapter 7 where all the believers were sealed. And that's what you are seeing in measuring the temple. The temple is God's people. Uh, God dwelling among his people. We've made this point a couple times in the book. That's what you see in the early chapters of Genesis, the creation of this cosmic temple where God will dwell among his people. That's what you see at the end of the book of Revelation where creation is restored. You see God dwelling among his people. Uh, and there is no temple because there is no need for it because God's permanent indwelling presence is on earth among his people. But you also see it throughout the New Testament. Uh, we look so hard trying to 
come up with a literal temple in end times prophecies like Ezekiel and Revelation, trying uh, to figure out what this end times temple is going to look like when it's recreated in Jerusalem, uh, when really the New Testament tells us what this temple is over and over and over again. The New Testament tells us that we are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 2 Corinthians 6.16, And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him we both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. And similarly, Peter, in his first epistle, in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And even here in Revelation, we see this idea that God's people are the temple. Revelation 3.12, we saw the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And in a verse we haven't yet reached in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13.6, the beast comes up out of the abyss and it began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And so in Revelation 13.6, a, a passage that talks about the beast coming up, much like this one in, in chapter 11, God's dwelling place, his temple, are those who dwell in heaven, those believers who have already past, who have already died and are now present with God in heaven. And I think that's the interpretive key to understanding what's going on in Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2. He is measuring the temple of God in the altar. He's measuring the people of God. He's measuring those in whom God's presence dwells. Uh, and God tells him to count those who worship there, count those who worship in the temple proper and at the altar, but not to count those who are in the outer courts, and not to count those who are in the courtyard outside the temple because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And so what I think you see is that the temple, much like it says in Revelation 13, are those believers who are already in the presence of God, who have already uh, departed this earth. And the outer courtyard are those believers who are left behind on earth during this time. And so we would be that outer courtyard, those 
believers who are not yet in the temple proper, not yet in the full presence of God, but instead are left here for a time on earth to be trampled on by the nations. And yet, even in the midst of that, the assurance here is that we are God's temple, that even in the midst of being trampled by the Gentiles, even in the midst of being trampled by the nations for 42 months, for that three and a half year period, even in the midst of that, God's presence dwells with us. Uh, we are not yet in the inner courts of the temple, but we are within the walls of the temple, in those outer courtyards, waiting to be let in to the full presence of God. And that is uh, the first aspect of our certain comfort here in uncertain times in, in chapter 11 is that no matter what we are going through, no matter how much we are trampled on by this world, God is dwelling in our midst and one day we will fully be in his presence. And so the church is defined by the presence of God. Secondly, the church is called to the ministry of Jesus. The church is called to the ministry of Jesus. And there's two aspects of this ministry of Jesus. The first is that we are called to ministry about Jesus. Uh, in verse 6, where it says that the, two, that the two witnesses have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. These are obviously references to the ministries of Elijah and to Moses. Uh, but again, I don't think this is specifically saying these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Rather, these two witnesses have the ministry of Elijah and Moses. And based on how uh, Scripture can often be interpreted, this is uh, probably not just a reference to Moses and Elijah. These are probably references to the law and the prophets, with Moses standing as the law and Elijah standing as a representative of the prophets, that these two witnesses are the new uh, incarnation of the law and the prophets, and that like the law and the prophets pointed forward to Jesus Christ, so now these witnesses point to Jesus Christ. And so it is a, a call to us as the church, as these witnesses during these end times between the two comings of Christ, that ultimately the ministry we are called to is to point to Jesus. And that can so often be forgotten uh, in a world where we are uh, inflamed with so many things that we're passionate about, where we're tempted in all kinds of different ways. To forget that the ultimate reason why the church is here is to point people to Jesus, that everything we do should ultimately be with the end of pointing people to Jesus. Uh, all of our social ministries, all of our evangelistic ministries, everything we do ultimately is to bring people to know Jesus Christ. And it is important that we keep this in mind. Again, we are uh, filming this, this episode in September of 2020. We're six weeks away or so from an election, a presidential election. Uh, and the church has and, and is so prone to getting so distracted uh, by things that we kind of forget that our ultimate purpose here is to point people towards Jesus. And instead, we think that our ultimate purpose is to point people towards our political party or our candidate or our preferred policies or whatever the case may be. 
Or sometimes we even point people to our specific church or our specific denomination. Um, or we point people uh, towards uh, ourselves and our own talents and our own abilities. And we forget that ultimately we point people to Jesus. And so being called to the ministry of Jesus is first being called to ministry about Jesus, to point people to Jesus, just as the law and prophets pointed people to the Messiah. But secondly, we are called to the same ministry as Jesus. Uh, we are called to the same ministry as Jesus. These two witnesses are very much depicted in a similar way to what we see of Jesus in the Gospels. Much like Jesus, the words don't appear here, but it's clear that these two witness are, witnesses are calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They are calling people to repent and believe the gospel, to believe the good news. They are standing over and against the world in judgment, not by uh, cursing the, the world with words, not by shaming the world or guilting the world or calling down fire from heaven on the world like Jesus' disciples wanted to do in the Gospels, but merely by the lives they live and the message they proclaim, they are over and against the world, bearing witness to the good news, to the good news of Jesus Christ in his first coming and his, the good news of Jesus Christ in his second coming. And ultimately, the judgment that comes is the judgment that comes with failure to believe the good news. The church does not need to call down judgment from heaven upon the world because the world, if it does not believe the gospel, is calling down judgment on themselves. And so we see the witnesses much like Jesus suffering and dying. And that is our expectation as the church in the world during these end times that we will suffer for the sake of our message, that we will even perhaps die for the sake of our message, just like Jesus. Even the way it's described that uh, I will grant my two witnesses in verse 3 authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth, that the witnesses are dressed in the, the clothes of mourning, of grief, of lamentation, uh, because they are... They are known as sufferers, and they uh, lament and grieve over a world that is not believing their message. And so the witnesses suffer like Jesus. They die like Jesus. They lie for three and a half days, although unlike Jesus, not in a tomb. They are not granted a burial, but lie out in the open. And again, I don't think this three-and-a-half-day period is literal any more than the three-and-a-half-year period is literal. But I do think you're supposed to see that comparison. The, the ministry of the witnesses lasts for three-and-a-half years, but their death only for three-and-a-half days. And it is supposed to be that stark contrast that even when it appears that the church has been defeated, the enemy's apparent victory over the church is short-lived temporary, transient, compared with the ministry and the victory of the church. And then, of course, we see not just that, uh, that sober reminder that we are to expect suffering and death, but also the hope of resurrection. These witnesses are raised like Jesus. Uh, they are resurrected, and they ascend up into heaven 
like Jesus into the presence of God. Uh, hearing a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And even in the midst of their death, and perhaps especially in the midst of their death and ascension to heaven, we are to see that it is then that the church finally, the, the world finally understands. It is when the, the witnesses have died and been resurrected and been called up to heaven that then the world shows some sign of repentance. After a violent earthquake takes place, which also took place at the death of Jesus, a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That idea of giving glory to the God of heaven, especially in Revelation, is always associated with true worship. Uh, but that word terrified is not typically associated with the fear of God, but rather sheer and utter terror. Uh, and so we're not 100% sure uh, what is the result of this seeming repentance of the world, whether it is the world uh, finally coming to see through the witness of the church. Um, but it's very possible that is. We see that throughout history, that it is when the church is most persecuted and is still faithful to their witness, even in the midst of persecution, that the very world that is persecuting them starts to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel that, the, that they proclaim. And so what we see, whether this is uh, meant to be an end times, uh, a very end of days uh, circumstance, or whether uh, these events are things that take place repeatedly, throughout the church age. What we see is very much what G.K. Chesterton has written, which I think I've, I've used before in this series. But Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. That is our comfort even in the midst of uncertain times, is that our victory over these uncertain times is certain, that even as we suffer, even if we die for the sake of our witness, we know that we will be raised again to new life. And it may very well even be in the midst of our suffering and our death that the world sees the truth of the message we proclaim. And so the church is defined by God's presence. The church is called to uh, the ministry of Jesus. And thirdly, the church is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. These two witnesses are uh, called the two olive trees and two lampstands. And this is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm going to read the whole chapter of Zechariah chapter 4 just so that you uh, get the context of, of what's going on here and what is being pictured here in Revelation 11, uh, but there's really one verse in particular that stands out that I think we should have in our minds as we read about these two witnesses. But Zechariah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, the angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. 
Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? Don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me? I said, No, my Lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. I asked him, What are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, What are the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring through the two golden conduits? Then he inquired of me, Don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These two witnesses in Revelation are clearly meant to be the two uh, anointed ones in Zechariah 4. Uh, they are meant to be what was pictured then as Zerubbabel and Joshua, uh, the, the, leader, the leaders of the people and the, the priests of the people. And these two anointed ones in Zechariah 4, it was not by power nor by might, but by God's Spirit that they bore witness. Uh, and so, similarly, we are supposed to carry that forward into Revelation 11. And these two witnesses in Revelation, it is not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit that the church bears its witness. And so, uh, this is another one of those areas where we need to be mindful not only of what we're doing, that we're pointing people to Jesus and not getting distracted pointing people to other things, but also be mindful of in whose power are we doing that. Because it is not by might nor by power that the end, that the end times are going to come, that Christ is going to return, that the gospel is going to, be, to spread, that the world is going to be overcome. It is not by power, it's not by might, it's only by God's Spirit. It is God's Spirit that enables the church to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, to the cross, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of conflict, of persecution, of war, of, of plague, of pandemic, of tribulation. It is only God's Spirit. We see this in 2 Corinthians 10, Verses 3 and 4 as well, which says, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And so we must examine how we are waging war. How we are seeking to conquer the world. How we are looking to point people to Jesus. Is it in accordance with the flesh, whether that be in our churches instead of preaching the gospel, uh, doing all kinds of fleshly means of entertainment to try and entice people in? Or is it uh, by 
trying to use worldly political means to conquer the world, uh, spreading falsehoods, conspiracy theories on social media instead of testifying to the truth of the gospel, entrusting in politicians and political parties uh, for our victory instead of trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ, even if that means our lives look like the cross of Jesus Christ for our victory. Are we waging war according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Are we trusting in power and in might or in God's spirit as we bear witness in this world? Because it is only by God's spirit. It's not only by God's spirit that these two witnesses witness, but they are also raised by the spirit. After they lie for three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Uh, again, this is sign of the Holy Spirit. And then they go up to heaven in a cloud. They're pulled up into heaven by the Spirit. And so everything that the church does uh, ultimately is empowered by the Spirit of God. Or it is not from God at all. There is no, well, I'm going to do this 50% in my own strength and 50% in the strength of the Spirit. We are either operating in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Holy Spirit to do His work, or we are taking back control and trying to do things in our own strength. And so the church is defined by the presence of God. It's called to the ministry of Jesus, and it is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is our certain comfort in uncertain times. Our comfort is that while we should expect suffering in this life, while we should expect uncertainty, we should expect persecution, we should expect tribulation, we should also expect the presence of God, the precedent of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to bear up under it, to persevere in our witness to Him, even to the point of death, that the world around us might see and give glory to God in heaven. Thank you for joining us as we've looked at the two witnesses in the first half of Revelation 11, and we'll pick back up with the rest of Revelation chapter 11 next time.